Hi, I'm Len App from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Luke Bodoin. Based in Vancouver, Luke is a cognitive scientist and adjunct professor of cognitive science and of education at Simon Fraser University. He is co-founder of the cognitive productivity software company CogSci Apps, which creates products including My Sleep Button and the recently launched Hook for Mac OS, and quote, app that enables you to instantly link and access arbitrary resources, files, web pages, messages, tasks, etc., end quote, thus giving you the tools you need to organize related information in an efficient and meaningful way on your Mac, something you just can't do in a conventional filing system. You can find out more about CogSci apps at CogSciApps.com, and you can find Hook at HookProductivity.com, and you can follow Luke himself on Twitter at LukeCogZest. Luke is the author of two LeanPub books, the latest being Cognitive Productivity with Mac OS, Seven Principles for Getting Smarter with Knowledge. In the book, Luke presents seven principles for learning better and faster using software that can help you improve your focus and recall in an age of constant, distract, constant distraction and information overload. Luke has actually appeared on this podcast before, so in this episode we'll be departing from the usual pattern and focusing more exclusively on discussing his latest book and the launch of his product, Hook, which is a particularly interesting product uh, from LeanPub's perspective as it is actually based on the principles set out in Luke's book. So thank you, Luke, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Huh, it's a pleasure to be here again. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story, but as I mentioned just now, uh, you've been on the podcast before, and people can refer to that earlier one to learn a little bit more about your background, so I thought we might just jump right in and talk about your latest book, Cognitive Productivity with Mac OS. When did the project get started, and what was your purpose for writing the book? Oh, wow. The project actually started while I was right, uh, finishing the last, my, my first LeanPub book, and I I thought to myself, you know, this book, this first book, is uh, got a lot of text and um, and some people would uh, and yet I want to help people with very practical concerns. So I think it would be very helpful to do a second book that has screencasts that demonstrate the um, you know the tips that I provided part three. So to go back to the first book, it talks about in a first part it's basically the situation, the challenges, the problems and opportunities we hate we face, we knowledge workers and higher ed students in. Uh, in processing information, working with knowledge, learning with technology. And part two was all about the cognitive science. It's about that. And part three was, okay, here's, here's how you can use existing applications to, um, you know, to apply the general ideas that are discussed in the book, solve the problems, basically, that are discussed in the book. And then I realized, yeah, I should really do a, um, a, link, uh, a book on, on, on this that contains screencasts. And I think at the time you had already... There's already some support for screencasts, um, and I could. This is going back to 2013 now, so I can't. Maybe you had started talking about it at LeanPub that you'd be able to support, um, or maybe actually it was EPUB already. So maybe there was already material there. I didn't know how I would do it. Oh, I know. I had seen Max or uh, David Sparks' book, Paperless. Yes, yes. So it would have even been 2012. I got turned on to that idea. Hey, wow, wouldn't it be cool? Yeah. So that's uh, that's the background. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's 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 fantastic. Yeah, um, one one thing I, as I was preparing for this interview, I read you've written just to give some context that the cognitive productivity books can be read as proactive responses to the post truth era. Oh yeah, uh, even though yeah. even though you you mentioned elsewhere that the books don't yet directly discuss post truth, and I was really curious. I yeah. wanted to ask you what what do you mean by the post truth era? Well, you know, it's this era in which. Um, um, the respect for truth has has decreased, and I think that term came out. I mean, I think it was put into the OED in 2016. You know, the year that uh, uh, the United States uh, elected the president, they did. Um, and um, yeah, so 
so so yeah, that's that's basically I think what people mean about post-truth is the lack of respect for truth and thinking does matter. And and you know, it's also post-expertise. There's a um, professor in the states who wrote a book called The Death of Expertise. So that's kind of all tied tied together. So so really, I'm actually I've got a campaign with Cogsciaps about apply knowledge. I haven't said much yet, except for a, a blog post I put out last year, really. But it's uh, it's basically to 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 get people to re-understand the importance of knowledge, of understanding knowledge, and applying it. And it, apply knowledge is actually also the seventh principle uh, of my uh, of my of my latest book. Yeah, um, apply knowledge um, because uh, ultimately that's what we should seek to do with knowledge, right? Particularly as knowledge workers, we're not just being, it's not about the exam, right? <laughs> Even student, as students, we should be just studying for the exam, but as knowledge workers, we, we want to do something with the knowledge that we, uh, that we process. So all of my cognitive productivity stuff is, you know, there's another term for it in terms of what I focus on. It's called meta-effectiveness. It's basically the skills and dispositions of using knowledge to be more, uh, more effective. So, yeah, so so my books are about that, and Hook is really very much about facilitating the uh, the use of knowledge. Yeah, just I've got I've got quite a few questions to ask you about Hook going uh, in in a few minutes. Um, but sure. uh, before doing that, um, I just yeah. wanted to ask you I don't I don't know if you actually are, are teaching at university these days. Um, but no, actually, no. <laughs> okay. I'm, I, I give workshops, um, presentations, etc. But I. I have been a teaching professor, but at the moment I'm more of a research professor. I do research and uh, development, and uh, yeah, write papers yeah. and uh, and and try to push the boundaries of knowledge in different areas that are interrelated. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I just wanted to ask another question about you know post truth, the post truth era. Yeah. Is this is this something that people in the sciences in academia are seeing or concerned about on campuses? You know, because it's it's kind of like it's very easy to just kind of like something in Facebook that's nonsense. But when you oh, wow. sort of, you know, get the bucket of cold water dumped on you in, in, you know, physics class, it might be a little bit harder to sustain a kind of post-truth attitude on the part of right, a, exactly. a young, a young yeah. student. You know, so I, I don't want to make a historical pronouncement because it's very hard to actually measure these things. But I will say that, you know, university has always been about uh, helping people with that transition. So the post-truth thing is more of a societal thing. It's how society is shifting, whereas university is, is about helping minds shift out of, um, you know, being being just a child at home, et cetera, to uh, interacting with, uh, you know, the greatest minds of all time and trying to absorb, uh, assess, understand, and absorb their ways of thinking. Um, so that, that would kind of be my response to that. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't want to pronounce myself on the on the specifics of what what's happening uh, on campus these days because there's so much that's affected you know where technology and uh, exchange of information is having an impact but there there is i mean <laughs> there there are complaints and if you look at that uh, that book on the death of expertise by tom nichols you know there's he's really calling that that stuff out and his experience is that yeah students are coming to university with a lack of respect for expertise that's really hard to shake that probably wasn't there before i mean you know that, that there was a more respect for experts now a lot of people think hey it's you know my opinion is as good as yours it's all a matter of opinion and some some you know academics to a certain extent are responsible for that not all of them but postmodernists who lack respect you know for for knowledge understanding objective truth etc like um they that they played into that right so 
we're seeing some of the results of that. Maybe, you know, parents bringing up their kids, um, you know, and, and telling them things about knowledge that are not true, <laughs> you know. Um, and then the kids show up at the university and have less respect for knowledge. So, okay. Yeah, that's, that, so that's, that's kind of that's, a long, long-winded, non-committal answer. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really interesting, I guess. Um, I don't, I don't want to go down this path too far, and I don't want to take you down a path you don't want to go down. But what does, what do you think, Post, what does postmodernism mean to you? Because I've heard from people who don't necessarily have a background in literary theory and architecture and things like that. They often right. seem to have what, to me, is a very inaccurate view of what postmodernism is. Well, then probably more important is your view of postmodernism. My, my <laughs> view, the, ec- the echoes of port- postmodernism to which I'm exposed are basically relativistic with respect to truth. So people who... Um, um, you know, that's an epistemological slant on knowledge. So, you know, with uh, David Hume, David Hume kind of shook the foundations of knowledge in the Western world, making us realize that a lot of our knowledge is, is, is um, you know, knowledge is, a lot of knowledge is essentially conjectural, to make a long story short. And Karl Popper uh, had a response to that. Yeah, but we can falsify, and we've got methods in science to uh, to falsify, to show what isn't truth, and science can proceed in certain ways that are rigorous and there's there's actually a logic he wrote a book called the logic to, of scientific discovery right so there's a logic to it um and in some circles um relativism is taken very far on the epistemological so the epistemology being the philosophy of knowledge right so mm-hmm. so so what's your assessment am i am i misuse am i well am i painting postmodernism with a brush that i shouldn't be uh i i i would say yes Okay. One thing one thing that happened in not just sort of like architecture and literary, which is where more or less the term originally comes from, but there was something in philosophy, which you've probably heard of in the 20th century called like, uh, this is broad generalizations here, right? But the linguistic turn and, and more or less in the same way that one, one of David Hume's insights back in the day was that there's, mm-hmm. this, there's this divorce between our consciousness of reality and reality itself. That's why right. I, I can have a sense of causality, but I can never truly confirm it because my consciousness is not identical with the reality out there. And in when it comes to language, you can have a kind of similar approach to it, which is that no matter what words we use, they are divorced from the reality that they're referring to. Right. And so what comes across as relativism, I think, is actually often a misunderstanding of what observations that are being made in language about how language is imperfect. And it's that, right. it's that particular problem there that mean that, that sort of part partially is the reason so many sort of postmodern writers get very meta in their way of writing because they're using yeah. writing to talk about writing. Um, and yeah. anyway, that's, I, so that's, that's the sort of short answer that there's actually like very serious observations about the lack of a one-to-one correspondence between the symbols we use to refer to reality and reality itself, that if you really take it seriously, leads you down some pretty interesting paths, not just with respect to epistemology, yeah. but with respect to ontology itself, yeah. you know, being yeah. and the different types yeah. of being and how they interact with each other. Yeah. Well, pitch at that level of abstraction, I, I don't have much of a problem problem with that. Um, I would qualify in terms of the indeterminacy of language that, you know, it's maybe not as bad as it's sometimes made out to be, i.e. translation kind of works. For instance, with colors, we've we add just a lot of stability to how people represent the reality. And you might say, well, it's just that humans happen to have a perceptual apparatus that's, you know, that's concordant across, um, you know, cultures. 
um, and uh, so on. Um, but uh, yeah, that reminds me. Of that's a, often, philosopher, a philosopher yeah. friend of mine says the best proof that language works are skyscrapers. Right. <laughs> you know, if okay. they couldn't communicate, there would they they couldn't stand. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, and I think there, yeah, a lot of interesting things follow. There's deep truths about that, uh, but there are still. Um, I mean, we mustn't be led to um, naively question. You know, I mean, if I, you know, like there's a way to question to progress knowledge, basically. So you can say, I guess you could say, a lot of us are are, are optimistic. Uh, optimists. We think that science actually does make progress, and uh, that we can engage, and that, um, um, yeah, criticism can criticism is part of that. Criticism is part of that, but it does does not mean that my opinion is as good as yours. Type of thing. You know, so there are still experts. There's still domains of knowledge. Um, there's still a valid attempt to get at uh, objective truth, um, and then there's progress. You know, so <laughs> maybe, maybe, anyway. yeah. No, thanks. Thanks very much for that and for being game for talking about this, which I kind of sprung sure. on you, I guess. Um, uh, so, what, oh, that's good. What, what is the difference between productivity, cognitive productivity, and what you mentioned just now, meta effectiveness? Okay, so. Productivity is a very general term that applies to machines as well as to humans, basically, and to, low, to jobs that don't have a lot to do with, um, uh, with knowledge at all, with objective knowledge, with, with uh, you know, the kind of knowledge that you get out of books and that you can extend, et cetera. So if you work at McDonald's, I mean, there's, there's lots, there is objective knowledge. There's explicit rules that you use, and, of course, there's tacit knowledge. Um, but the, the productivity there, you know, as we're seeing, it can be replaced by machines, and there's not... Um, the amount of knowledge that's being used is very, very sparse. So that's productivity in general. And if you look at productivity frameworks, like getting things done, for instance, a lot of the examples in that book are actually just about everyday productivity. He talks about, you know, organizing your garage and filing paper mail and stuff like that. So um, productive. So that's that's productivity in general. Cognitive productivity is everything productivity oriented to do with knowledge and. Uh, you know, that involves knowledge and meta effectiveness is, is basically, it's a subset of that cognitive productivity is basically effectiveness and efficiency at becoming more effective at using knowledge, you know, and at solving, at solving problems, at creating, um, creating artifacts and improving yourself basically. So, so it's, yeah, the cognitive uh, part has to do with uh, knowledge and the use uh, and the use of knowledge. And uh, yeah, so I'm really interested in that, particularly, you know, self-improvement, uh, but, my, inter, you know, learning, right? Uh, but the books try to be more general that, than that. They also address, you know, solving problems and, uh, um, and, and so on. But, it's, uh, but, but improving ourselves is one of the key forms of cognitive productivity. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I'm not sure if this is related, but um, in a paper that you sent me a link to in advance of this interview um, called Perturbance, Unifying Research oh, yeah. Motion, Intrusive Mentation, and Other Psychological Phenomena with AI. There's In the abstract, yeah. there's a statement that says, um, cognitive architectures need to consider requirements of autonomous agency. Yes. And I yeah. wanted to ask you about that. And if is, is that yeah. related to some extent to what you were just talking about? Like, I mean, it's sort of at a crude level about self-improvement, but there's a kind of a theoretical layer about autonomy and agency that I, at least I drew a connection between those two things, but I'm not, that might just be my invention. Right. Okay. So to me, to me, that's one of the deep, hopefully truths are deep. I mean, it's, it's certainly one of my beliefs about how we should understand and seek to understand um, ourselves and each other's 
particularly as scientists, right, is is um, looking at ourselves as um, as as autonomous autonomous agents. Which, incidentally, that the, the title of my PhD thesis was goal processing and autonomous agents. Um, so the, the kind of backstory that, to that is 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 the is a requirement driven design process. We call it the designer stance. Uh, Daniel Dennett calls it the design stance. Um, same, basically, yeah, same thing. Um, so the desi- design stance is a stance to, you know, an AI, which is to reverse engineer the a system if you want to understand it. So if you want to understand vision, reverse engineer it and say, okay, well, what are the capabilities of these things? What requirements does it meet? If I were to try to build it, what would I, what would I do? So you've got to start with the requirements and, and ecology. And then you move on to designs and, and so forth. Um, so that's kind of the general approach. And then, so to understand emotions and other things that are discussed in that paper, which is quite a, quite a few things, I say, well, you know, we got to think of ourselves as autonomous agency. Let's start from our competence be, that we're able to create and process multiple goals, you know, our own purposes. Um, and then we do all kinds of interesting things with them. We, we assess them. Uh, we choose them, we plan for them, we schedule them, we do all these kinds of things. So I guess this could lead us into a big discussion, um, but you know, but I I found using that perspective that really gives, it's a way to gain insight into um, into human emotions. It's a bit of a long story, uh, but actually there's uh, it, it makes sense of some recent developments in psychology in the psychology of emotions, and I'm thinking of a couple of or a few recent papers by a Belgian. Uh, psychologist of emotions, her name's Agnes Morse, who just looked at emotion and said, you know, I'm a little bit skeptical about emotions, and so are some of us. And I think the key to success here is to look at human beings as uh, as, as, as motivated uh, people and look at emotions through the lens of motivation. And then um, emotion, well, she doesn't take in this direction, but, well, she does use the word emergence, but in our framework, emotions could turn out, turn out to be, or well, something like emotion turns out to be an emergent phenomenon. So, so that's a long story. But to tie it back to all the cognitive productivity stuff is a little bit, um, I mean, the, the, the overlaps are quite abstract. Um, but I can say that, um, that, uh, that I basically use the same approach scientifically across all the problems that I'm interested in is to, is to reverse engineer ourselves and try to build big models, of, use big models of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for that. Um, before before uh, g- getting closer to to yeah. hook to hook, um, I have mm-hmm. one more question about your research, which is, um, and I think you're writing a book now on on discontinuities. And I was wondering if you wouldn't oh. mind talking a little bit about that idea. Oh sure, this is actually I'm a project about with which I've been very passionate for the last few years and kind of possessed. You have projects like that where they kind of have a life of their own, and uh, you just have to do them. And, and discontinuities for me is that. So uh, discontinuities addresses a lot of interrelated themes. And what it tries to do at one level, and that's the, the title, like the main part of the, t- part of the title is discontinuities. And the idea there is that, um, is that um, there's an alternative or an additional way to think about some of the realities of the human mind and the problems that we face in the world that we're in. You know, it, People tend to say, you know, the situation is not dichotomous, it's not black and white, it's, it's a continuum, it's shades of gray. But oftentimes, actually, it can, it, there's something more, there's something deeper at play, which is that there's a bunch of 
of discontinuity. So it's not all quantitative. So if you look at a lot of what's happening in AI these days, artificial intelligence has become machine learning. And these are number crunching systems and they're doing very interesting things, but, um, uh, but you know, they're all quantitative and they've, they're having difficulty. They're struggling with the symbol, still struggling with the symbolic aspect of human thought mechanisms and, and so on. So, so discontinuity kind of addresses that, that big idea, but <laughs> in case anybody's put off by it, well, that sounds metamathematical, which it is, but actually it's kind of a background underlying idea. I'm trying to convey I, that deep idea without um, actually having more than one chapter on it at the end, basically. Uh, so it, it deals with, um, it, it, the subtitle is Love, Art, Mind. So it deals with love, romantic love in particular, and uh, art, various forms of art in the human mind. And, and, and in particular, it, um, I'm, I'm interested in, in, romantic, in the uh, sapiosexuality aspect of romantic love is that you know, Jeffrey Miller had this hypothesis that, uh, that human intelligence evolved through sexual selection, and we tend to prefer mates who are at least as smart as us and preferably a little bit smarter than us. That's called uh, a sort of matching or mating. Um, and, uh, and, and so I'm exploring a little bit the, um, the attraction that we feel towards people of our preferred sex who are, you know, for their brains, basically for their smarts. So that's the theme of the book. Um, but there, I'm also exploring, um, uh, uh, epistolary, uh, love. So there's going to be bits about, uh, communication through love letters and that kind of thing. So those are, those are several themes in that, in that book that are going to play out. And it's discontinuous in that where it goes from one type of work to another, from one author to another. Um, there's, it's, you know, I was a little bit inspired by brainstorms and by, uh, which is a book by Daniel Dennett, very famous philosopher. And, um, and also a society of mind by Marvin Minsky. So there's multiple contributors. It's going to be uh, visual art in there. There's uh, short stories, essays, um, references to music, hopefully even um, a soundtrack. <laughs> I can pull that off and uh, different, different authors exploring these themes. Oh, well, that's I'm very that excited. Really fantastic. I really look forward to, to seeing that book come out, touching on so many interesting things. I haven't thought about Dennett in a long time, but I remember, uh, I think it might've been in Consciousness Explained where he wrote about uh, pandemonium. I think he was, that was what his concept of uh, borrowing from Milton, but it's the idea that, you know, the mind has many voices. It was just one, one way of expressing right, right. A, a familiar idea that the yeah. mind has many yeah. voices shouting at it all the yeah. time. Uh, yeah. I think that's a guy called Selfridge and, uh, but it, but you're talking about Ben Minsky picked it up and you're and I did I don't even remember this Dennett Dennett had a chapter on that too in that book well there you go um, he probably yeah that doesn't surprise me that he talked about it, talked about it yeah yeah um, so going going from all the way from romantic love and the way the mind works yeah. to the way our files are stored um, right. So I've got a selfish question. Um, this is going to take a little bit of setup here, but you'll see where I'm going pretty sure, quickly, sure. I think. So one of the things guaranteed to get me shouting at the computer is when I'm deprived of the ability to see how information is structured and to give it a structure myself. And in recent years, I've noticed what to me is a really disheartening trend. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're all used to the idea that products like Facebook and YouTube will use algorithms mm -hmm. and other kind of processes to curate what we see when we use their products. Yeah. Um, 
but I'm seeing it creep not just into like where we go to watch videos and posts, but also the organization of our information itself. For example, Google Docs and Drop Google Docs and Dropbox and even things like bookmarks in Chrome hide the structure of the information from you basically entirely and instead serve you up with whatever stuff they feel you're most likely to click on. Mm-hmm. Uh and tools like you know Spotlight and the Mac, while well, they're super powerful and super uh, and and amazing at what they do now, seem to be there in part to encourage us to search rather than like for terms, rather than structuring what our information that we've gathered and and you know things that we've created ourselves as well. What are, what are your general thoughts on this? Is is th- is this like this 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 capitulation to the app is this something that you're concerned about in in with respect to people's cognitive productivity um yeah i think it's a there's a there's a yeah there's a major problem there and um one needs to be able to a principle basically is you need one needs to be able to identify each resource knowledge resource you know every knowledge resource needs to have a handle so that you can you can you can connect to it right and ideally that you you know, you can put that link somewhere where you can use it in a, in a context. And you've got a lot of services that are trying to hide that. Um, Google Docs still gives you a URI, so that's good. But if you look at Facebook, I mean, it's crazy. Try getting a URL for a post or whatever. I mean, I don't use it anymore, but it frustrated me a lot. I was on Twitter this morning, um, and somebody, Ian McDonald, was a, I think his name is Ian McDonald, great CBC writer, had uh, put published something and Andrew Quine at uh, Toronto Star tweeted about it and I tried to find it. Well, actually here we had a failure of search. I use Twitter search. So have you ever found Twitter search to be useful? Oh my God, it's I mean, terrible. <laughs> so, I mean, it shows it's good to have a search engine, right? It is awful. Why can I find it? I need to use Google to ask uh, Google search. Obviously that's where they, 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 um, they excel, but Google couldn't find it either. Um, so I actually had to, it was very tedious to find that get back to that particular tweet um so so we've got we've got some major problems and i think we we need we need tools that are up to the task um yeah uh, I guess, I guess, I guess that the specific thing I'm, I'm, I'm. This is why I said sort of selfish, yeah. but I'm preoccupied yeah. with is like in my when with my computers that I've had in my life. There's mm-hmm. been kind of a top level, let's say, folder, and then it branches off into like my writing projects mm-hmm. or my academic mm-hmm. projects or blog posts, and then let like let's say it's my blog. Then then there will be like a different folder in the blog folder for all the different things yeah. I want to write about. And then in each one of those, there will be a folder for, you know, the, 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 the actual text files that I'm writing mm-hmm. and there will be different versions with numbers. And then, you know, there'll, there'll be another folder for research and then I'll have my documents related to the mm-hmm. research or the blog post in there. But it seems that what we're being pushed towards mm-hmm. by all the services that we use yep. is to actually not structure anything at all really and to just right. have it all have it all in one box and i guess like is that i mean it, w- i guess let me just ask you straightforwardly like which way do you think is better for people to think about it i okay i think we i think our information needs to be organized or i think multiple principles apply you do want a great search tool it doesn't hurt to have a smart recommendation system but you need to be able to organize information in a few different ways so we've already got access in most systems to a higher to a you know a hierarchy but google you're right google drive kind of takes that away it's very tedious in a web app you know web apps in general make life 
slow difficult often um so it's very mm-hmm. tedious to organ organize things hierarchically so that to me that's that's a major problem and i and 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 in information management circles that is like um a guy called Whitaker, I've forgotten his first name. I think we can put in the show show notes. They 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 recently published an important book on uh, personal information management. They published a lot in that area, and yeah, they're they emphasize the importance of curation. Curation is their metaphor. People need to be active organizers of information in order to be able to, you know, to survive, let alone thrive in in the knowledge age. And I I have to agree that that information should be accessible and manipulatable and organizable in that way, you know, but that's, that's one, one way to act, you know, that's one set of requirements, but also it's very useful to be able to tag things. I use Pinboard. I discuss it in my book and pocket, right. And they've got a tagging in a search system and that I've often uh, find information back that way, you know, so that's, that's one way finder, on Mac, Finder has tags. I think Windows introduced them too. Um, so that's a different way um, of, of accessing information, which is obviously search. And what Hook brings is different is it enables linkings. We know from the internet, what's the World Wide Web, right? I should not the internet, but the World Wide Web is, you know, the original basic idea. You've got resources that are addressable and links that connect them. And if you add a search engine on top of that, wow, that's really, can be very handy. Right, so I don't know. I'm kind of drawing into hook to say that one of the problems in the um, in our information management toolkit before hook was um, linking information was not really um, well. I'm gonna say possible. You couldn't do it uh, very easily, very well uh, before hook. Certainly, you couldn't easily link one document to another um, and not have those links break. And anyway. Yeah. yeah, just just so, yeah. So I'll, yeah, why don't why don't I sort of go ahead and give my little description of what Hook is, and you can sure. you can correct it. But it's it's a, so yeah. Move, moving on to the next part of the interview. So Luke has recently launched this product, Hook. It's pretty amazing, particularly if you're the kind of person who likes to have organized information, and in particular, being able to I guess being able to validate things that you've written later by referring to the source materials. For example, like let's say you're a journalist and you publish something. Uh, and then someone calls you on it. What's your source for this? It, yeah. Historically, like, you know, you, you sort of, you know, you have ways of um, conventions for like bibliographical citation and things like that. But we all know the reality is that like, let's say you downloaded a PDF and it's in some folder on your computer or whatever. And then you wrote your article and, you know, you've got that, you've got that reference somewhere. But, you know, if you're very particular about this kind of thing, tracing evidence and, you know, supporting materials, you can't really be sure that the file that you're going to later is the same one that you used initially. That's one sort of problem with organizing information. And so the one of the magic, the magical thing that Hook does, uh, at least the, what, from what I've discovered so far, one of the magical things it does is that I can say, select, a, let's say I'm writing in Microsoft, I'm writing an article in Microsoft Word, I can select the article, and then I can use Hook to establish a link between that article and let's say a PDF document that I'm using uh, in my research for writing that article. And so then when I, I can then later on select my Word document, launch Hook, and then it will show me all of the documents that that document is linked to. And another amazing thing that Hook can do as well is that it can actually link documents to web pages. 
so that actually if I write an article and I've been doing research on the internet for it, I can select the article in Finder on my Mac and then with the file selected launch hook and actually see all the links to all of the web pages that I used in the research and click on them right there. So yeah. I don't need to separately like, you know, go hunting in my bookmarks in Chrome or something like that and hope I find the right thing. They're actually there. And for example, I, I used it to do research for this interview. So for example, I got copies of your books and I could link them to each other. And, oh, then, cool. and like this might, this might sound to people listening like a little bit like kind of in the weeds, but like I moved, I tested it and I moved a folder yeah. from one, I moved one of the file, the book files from one folder to another and the link yeah. was maintained, which was just amazing. Does that does that capture at least the the big picture of what Hook is is? It, it captures it captures a lot. It captures a lot, and what you've described is uh, is true, I think. And um, uh, it does like it could be used in all kinds of different ways, but that's definitely a major set of use cases. Yeah, yeah. The links are robust, uh, meaning that, like, as you said, you can you can move files around, and the links will still work. And that 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 ends up being very important. Um, so yeah, the backstory is that yeah, this 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 product has come out of years of research, our research and development, including um, research that led to my two cognitive productivity books. And I, there was a set of problems that I addressed or I discussed in the in the first book called the Meta Access Problem, and, and it's it's that around any important bit of inf uh, a document, let's say, in, around any bit of important document, or it could be a video or whatever resource. There often is a little a network. You can think of it in terms of um, in terms of you got the sun and planets going around it. And I drew it that way in the in the in the, in the, in the first column of productivity book. You know, orbiting around this central document, there's other documents, and one needs to be able to quickly navigate between them in order to do one's knowledge work and one's learning. So yeah, hook allows you to set up these links between a focal resource and other resources, and then and then basically navigate between them and so that yeah if you're called like uh, as a journalist or a student or, or whatever if you're giving a presentation for instance you want to be able to get back to that information um so there's a hook pop-up window that comes up that maintains where you can basically add and remove links and utilize links and that by the way you can do it not only from the finder but in supported apps you can actually open the app you know, whatever it is, like if you happen to like Word, <laughs> you can bring up the hook window in Word, and it'll show you the, the related links um, in 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 our little hook window. Um, yeah, so 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 that you can answer questions, but you can actually get at, one of the big features of Hook is to get the address of almost any document, as many as we can support. So, um, and then you can paste that in your notes too. So if you don't like things in the hook pop-up window, you can just put them in your notes or in your to-dos. You know, today I need to read these three documents, for instance, and just paste the links. Um, and you, and or you can above, link, yeah. you can link to emails as well, uh, including. I mean, you you sent me in, in our email exchange before yeah. this interview. You sent me a hook link to the the emails themselves, and so yeah. I I played with it, and so I've got your yeah. book. Your book, one of your book files is in 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 my computer is linked to my email in Gmail that I access yeah. through Chrome. I mean, it's just amazing. Well, you know, there's a lot of yeah, it's based on a lot, a lot of thought, and basically, these just, this, there's a, there is this nexus of problems um, that I that I discussed in cognitive productivity. That you know, it's a major pain point, and people, it's like the iPhone. You know, before the iPhone, people didn't realize they needed an iPhone. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't mean to boast here, say it's like the iPhone, but I mean, in that sense, is that 
there's these pains. Well, I have, I've just thought about these pains. I, I like thinking about these pains. I've tried to solve them. And email is definitely one of them um, where you'd want to, you know, if you want to refer to an old email, like from six months ago or three months ago, or even last week, because there's been a hundred since then, you know, to somebody else, it's a pain for that other person to, you know, and then people end up copying these big threads. Personally, I don't like that. I think it's a waste of bits. It's a waste of storage space, but also where's the, I don't want to have to look at all this information. Just send me a link so I can get the information and a quote where I can get the, you know, send me the quote that's relevant, maybe a link so I can get to it if I want to, but I don't want to see the entire email right now. Thank you. Yeah, I hope it's going to be useful. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I think it will be. And um, uh, I guess one one question. I'm very curious. I, I mean, not that I will necessarily understand, but if you could explain a little bit about how Hook works under the hood. Okay, sure thing. Um, so, so um, uh, various applications on the Mac already have kind of an app, uh, an API, or some scripting that we can use to get a few key pieces of information. So if you're in an email, for instance, you bring up the hook window, well, we can, um, we can, there's a copy as link command and, and that link will try to get the name of the current resource um, and the URL or URI of that current, current resource. So we need, we need the app to play friendly and give us, give us that information. Um, the other thing we need is to be able to open a resource with a particular address, which could be a path. So if you're familiar with, the, say, the Finder file systems give you a path, right? Or there could be something else like mail messages have a, an ID, uh, tend to have an ID. Your notes have IDs. OmniFocus, for instance, has its its own URI. So as long as we can, the app will respond to that, then we're good to go. And uh, most apps, most apps will provide that kind of information. Um, so, so under the hood, yeah, we we make calls to um, to the applications to get to get these to get the information that we need. We being hooked, and uh, and um, and if that support isn't there, well, we've got a little script editor so that uh, developers can add scripts of their own, um, and then they can send us the scripts and we'll put them in. For instance, today, Michael Tsai, who's one of the uh, biggest, most well-respected names in the Mac blogosphere. Um, sent sent me a script. We had already supported EagleFiler, but we didn't have the open for some reason. The script to open an EagleFiler. No, to create a new EagleFiler resource. That's another. That's the fourth one, actually. Fourth thing that we need. Anyway, he sent me that. So he noticed probably that it was missing. He sent me that. We put it on our script server, and now anybody who does an update should be able to to get that. So that's kind of some of the stuff that uh, that happens under the hood. The, the concept of hook is very simple in the end. Um, so, but under the hood, we, we do think other things, for instance, we, if we're referring to a file, we'll actually create an alias under the hood and we've got a database that tracks, um, that refers to the, to the alias and aliases on Mac OS, they look simple, but they're actually beyond doing a lot of complicated work and hook leverages that. Yeah. And its origins go back all the way to 2002. I imagine going back that far, if you can remember what, how did, how did the ball get rolling? Well, I received a very nice golden handshake from Redback Networks in 2001. And rather than seek a job, I, I thought, okay, because I'd done, I'd been that founding employee of two startups before. And uh, I thought, okay, this is my turn now. So I'm going to be the, I was an app founding, but I wasn't a founder. So I wanted to found this thing. And I'm a cognitive scientist. So I was interested in, in, um, in developing products to help people with their, uh, with their, the, the problems that they face learning and using technology to learn, which I had analyzed and experienced as a knowledge worker in tech startups, you know, 
as I saw that, you know, software really isn't designed for definitely more calling science in mind. That was the impression I got. So I wanted to rectify that. So I've worked on that, um, solved the business proposal and kind of incubated that at Simon Fraser University with Phil Winnie for many years and then popped out of that. And, and um, at one point, actually, I thought, oh, you know, for this particular problem, which I call the meta access problem, I thought, uh, only Mac OS can solve this, you know, to do it right. So I had given up on it. We had done a, we'd, we'd, we'd addressed this problem, this meta access problem, the linking problem, if you will, in two um, personal learning environments that we developed. Um, and, uh, and they were great, but the linking was all happening within a single, essentially a single big app, which had all the different pieces you might want. Well, as many pieces that you might want. And I, you know, I said, you know, we really need to pop this out to be out of the, we need, we need a tool that's out, outside of, um, outside of particular apps. We can link anything. Um, yeah. And that, that's, that led to my exchange with Steve Jobs where I, uh, I actually proposed something to him and, uh, there was, uh, anyway, I proposed many things that ended up going into the cognitive productivity. One of which was, uh, what later became hook. Yeah. You, uh, you were, um, corresponding with Steve Jobs about the iPad, if I understand the situation correctly? Well, yeah, it was rumored that Apple was going to release a tablet, you know, late 2009. And I was tracking these things very carefully because, I, I mean, there's an educational application, which was my space. And, uh, yeah, so I uh, was exchanging with Sharp Brains, and, and uh, they wanted me to write for them. And I said, okay, how about, how about I do something on the iPad? And it was or not iPad. We didn't know what we called the iPad. Apple's upcoming rumored tablet. And they announced it that there'd be a keynote, right? So, so I said, let's do something cheeky. Let's, I'm going to write the requirements for this thing because that's the way my brain thinks. Right? <laughs> this is what this thing should do, you know, 10 things it should do. And then after it comes out, this is the deal. After it comes out, after he, had, he, he does this keynote, you know, I'll assess how it meets, how well this tablet meets the requirements that we set forth. So that's, that's exactly what, what I did. A week before, I think I, we published that uh, you know, the requirements. And then it came out, I looked at the video, blew me away. I just studied that video, you know, by the second, because the hardware wasn't there. All you had was that, that keynote, right? So I studied it. And, um, and then uh, I wrote my second article assessing it. thought you did a great job. And actually iPad was not well received. And, uh, and, and you can read this, the, the, the Steve Jobs biography uh, to see that he was disappointed about that. I mean, but uh, I thought it was a, really promising thing so but i knew they had not been well received and i could tell there were things they could do better in terms of my requirements which were not what anybody else was talking about so i mailed steve jobs about that because his, his email address was well known and i said hey you know i think it's great but i i think we could you know i could do even better and if you like my input you know i could slide down or we could have a phone call or i could write you a white paper and uh, he said uh send me a white paper on it so i did <laughs> I sent them. I wrote a thirty-plus page white paper, which is way too big. Um, anyways, on the, on the, you know, the, how Apple can improve um, cognitive productivity in its ecosystem, and uh, and um, and and then uh, I didn't get a response. I actually pressured and say, hey, "Come on, you know, I haven't heard back from you. Uh, you know, I pursue some of these ideas myself, which is a real dumb thing to say, but I'd like to get Apple shot." And he, he said, "We had no interest, actually." And uh, I said, okay, fine. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write my cognitive productivity book to elaborate these ideas that I've been, uh, that I've been thinking about all these years and researching, actually. So that, so that led to the first cognitive productivity book, 
Um, and, uh, and I kept going with, uh, with, well, we resumed hook. Uh, I had, I, I thought it, at the time that only Apple could do something like hook properly. But then when we looked under, I had a key insight and we looked and we looked under the hood and verified that, yeah, actually we can do it. So I felt a little bit silly that way, but, um, um, it's based on, uh, the, the idea is actually, uh, an outgrowth of my experience at Tundra Semiconductor, my first tech job. Uh, where I was actually a technical writer for them. They did bus bridges, which connect hardware pieces together. So they all, they specialized in the bus bridge connecting, which connect one semiconductor on one bus to another on another bus, like, um, or as many as you want on either side of the bus, like a PCI to VME bus bridge. Those are two bus bridge standards. Buses are communication protocols on hardware. So, so I just occurred to me all of a sudden, hold on, we can actually, we can just be the vendor of this little, like the bus, if we just provide the bridge between between documents, you know, that's a very useful product. It's very and and, and it's a viable business because I had seen it. We Tundra valuation went over a billion dollars. So it, I knew that if you solve that pain point for people, then people will will use your tool. You know, just keep it simple and just be the connector. So so then I pitched that to my my uh, my, my my colleague. And um, and then we decided to, yeah, we go for it. <laughs> that actually leads yeah. me uh, very well right into the next. Uh, thank you for sharing the story, by the way. That's fantastic. Um, my, my next question was going to be, uh, so how are you going to monetize Hook? Okay. So we, we're going to publish this pretty soon. Um, and it should really be there. We're a bit behind on our documentation. Um, it's bare bones. I think it's enough to get started, but we need more. And um and of course, people want to know, well, how much is this going to cost? Because it's in to free public beta right now. So, um, so there will be, um, so, so, so these are the tiers. Basically, you get your trial after 30 days, as usual, the trial expires. But instead of just going away completely, it transforms into light mode. Same binary, so you can keep the same package, if you will, the same program. Um, and then it, it'll, it'll, it'll transform itself into, uh, into light mode. And in light mode, you can, Create, send as many email links as you want. You can create, um, you can uh, use any links that you've created or that have been sent to you, but uh, link creation itself will be limited apart from email, creating email links. So that's kind of the model right now, uh, the model for those uh, tiers. And then there's going to be an essentials and a, uh, a pro version. So we'll have different features. Um, you know, the essentials will have everything you need. Or most of what you need to, uh, most of what most users will need, and then the pro, the pro tool will have um, additional features. So there'll be these three different tiers, and the prices are TBD. Um, it's in the teen range for the, for the essentials, as uh, what we plan, and uh, we're looking in the late, uh, to t- maybe twenty nine dollars. I hesitate to say because it's not one hundred percent, but anyways, that's a ballpark, and we're looking at. We'll get feedback on that to see well is that too high, is it too low, or what. Um, so that's the idea and the time, the, the, the license model will be similar to timing. If you're uh, happen to know the timing app on a Mac. Uh, so we're inspired by a lot of other apps. Um, so, so yeah, so we're going to monetize it by, by, um, yeah, the, uh, charging for the essentials and pro version. And, and so uh, for people who are interested, it's current, it's currently in beta and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but is, is the sort of the version that I, you know, downloaded myself yesterday, is that, is that going to expire? And then I'll have to download okay. it again when it gets into the next stage of development. Yeah. Yeah. So every, yeah, basically every beta we've just made expire after the, I think it's on the first of the month. So because it's in beta, we don't want people having a beta forever. It's, it's a, 
it's a, um, you know, it's a beta, so there's going to be bugs. I mean, software always has bugs, but, you know, beta is in testing phase. So, um, and then we decide, well, do we need to renew? Are we ready? And if it depends on, you know, the state of resi- readiness, um, but if, but uh, in any case, it'll then shift over to trial mode. So people will get, will get a month. So people will not be stuck with an app that they can't, um, you know, that they can uh, all of a sudden not use. We want the transition to be, uh, to be predictable, graceful uh, for people. So, got it. yeah. Got it. Fantastic. So, yeah. Well, yeah. For yeah. everyone listening, I, I definitely recommend if you're, if you're into things like this, uh, definitely check it out. Uh, it, it's a really amazing tool and it's got great potential. So good luck with everything, Luke, with the launch and uh, thank you with all the development work that I know you guys are doing. Uh, and uh, thank you very much for taking the time to do this interview. Uh, it's been six years, so hopefully it won't be that long ah, until yeah. we next chat. Maybe the, the next time your next book comes out, uh, we can maybe try this again. That'd be great. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to talk to you and to connect directly with the Lean Pub audience. Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're interested in becoming a LeanPub author yourself, please go to leanpub.com and click on Why LeanPub.